Well, Lord, our God, we do worship you this day and thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that you would uh, grant us understanding into your word. I ask, Father, for uh, the light of your spirit and the power of your spirit to preach your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and profitable to your blood-purchased church. In the precious and mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'd like you to picture with me for a moment, if you would, the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. He's in prison for at least the second time. This time he's not under house arrest. This time he's in a Roman dungeon. And even though he's a Roman citizen, he knows his time is up. He's under a sentence of death. And he writes a letter, one of his epistles. We call them epistles now. But to him it was a letter, the word of God. His last writing to his protege, Timothy, pastor of Ephesus. Nasty, nasty place to be a pastor. And he's writing, and you can see, you can feel the sorrow in his voice. Because he realizes that he's run the race, but his race is done. They say that the knowledge that you're going to die brings clarity. Well, I don't know, because I've never been told I was going to die. It certainly brought clarity to Paul. And with urgency, he tells Timothy many things. One of the things he says in chapter 2 is this. He says, Be thou strong, and grace is in Christ Jesus. And then pay attention to this. He said, Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul was calling Timothy to active duty, to active service, to an active faith. And that's what God wants from you. That's what he wants from me. God is not incredibly interested. He actually has no interest at all in people who merely listen. People who merely attend worship as if it were an interesting lecture. He has even less time or interest in those who go to worship merely out of habit, merely out of formal requirement, Merely out, certainly not as a means of social approval. Those who seek to use Christianity as a means of social approval so that people don't talk bad about them, that is incredibly thin ice to skate upon. That is what the Pharisees did. And what does Jesus tell the, tell the people when you... Give your alms. When you bring your offerings, don't let your left hand, right hand and left hand know what each other's doing. In other words, do it secretly so that people don't, don't know. See, the Pharisees developed this, to us, it would seem incredibly weird strategy. When they were going to give an offering, if it was going to be a big offering, not only would they announce it, they would almost have a little parade. That's why. Jesus says, 
so that people will see them, so that they will be approved by men. He said, truly I tell you, they have their reward. In other words, the faith of the Pharisees, for many of the Pharisees, not all of them, the faith of many of the Pharisees was just to win the approval of men and women, to be seen as holy in the sight of the people. They weren't truly concerned what God thought. Their faith was dead. It was just formal. It was not living. It was not active. If it was living and active, they would have realized that Jesus was the Messiah. We're moving into John chapter 11 in our readings. He's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Now, if any of Jesus' miracles should have convinced people that Jesus was who he said he was. I mean, you can fake a healing, can't you? He healed me. I had a headache. It's gone now. Prove me different. I had a backache. He healed me. Um, guy's in the grave. He's been dead for three, four days. He comes out. Everybody sees it. That should have woken them up. Do you know what it did? It made them hate him more. And that's when they really stepped up their campaign to put him to death. And not only that, they decided, "Mm, we should put Lazarus to death too. Because after all, he's the reason why people are really talking about him now. Because if this keeps up, the Romans are going to come and take away our place. He brings a man back from the dead. And their faith was so formal, so non-active, that instead of realizing the tremendous wonder of that miracle, they decided that that was the real reason they really, really have to kill this guy now, and we have to kill that guy, Lazarus. You see what sin did to them? Confuses them completely. James is all about active, living faith. Do you know why James is all about living, active faith? Because the entire scriptures are about living, active faith. There are many who think that the old covenant believers had a formal religion and that they were approved by God because of the way they did their sacrifices. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ezekiel 36 and 37 is where the doctrine of the new birth comes from. That's where it comes from. David understood he needed a clean heart. God told the people, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Anybody can bring a calf. All you have to have is money. Time and money. Bring a calf, bring a goat, have the priest do the the ritual. To obey, obey comes from the heart. God is calling you to active duty. God wants you to have an active faith, a living faith, a faith that actually does something in the real world, that has an effect on history, that has at first an effect on ourselves and then those around us. How do we know that? Well, verse 21. Now, verse 21 is, again, one of those pivot verses that James uses. It's a verse that I used a little bit last week, and it it flows very well with the message of today. Because James uses these verses, as a good writer, 
to link the parts of his message together. You like it when things flow together. And James says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive the meekness, with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Please notice he says all filthiness. That's a good translation. When you use the word filthy, what do you mean? Really, really disgustingly dirty. I mean, when you use it properly. Well, sometimes a kid will have a little bit of dirt on his hands. So your hands are filthy. Ah, you don't really mean they're filthy. And you just want them to go put some alcohol sanitizer on. But filthiness, in this context, means what it says. Disgusting. Toxic. Filthy, stinking, dirty. That's how God views sin. What is sin? Any violation of God's law. And then it says, and overflow of wickedness. Hmm. So sin is filthy, and there's an overflow of wickedness. This tells us, and listen carefully, this tells us two things. One, sin is much more disgusting to God than we can imagine. It's filthy. Two, since there's an overflow of wickedness and we're to lay it aside, there's a lot more of it in our lives, there's a lot more of it in our closets than we can ever imagine. I urge you to sit down and do a little bit of a Martin Luther. Some of us could use a little bit more of that to really sit down quietly and reflect upon our lives. And to ask ourselves, is our faith real, genuine, and active? And if so, how much sin is actually there? How much sin does God require before he sends the sacrifice of sacrifices to atone and get rid of that sin? There's a lot there. An overflow of wickedness. And bear in mind that he addresses them as beloved brothers. Filthiness and an overflow of wickedness exists in people who are already made new in Christ. We're to lay it aside. And as I mentioned last week, that term lay aside is used, was used in the ancient world when you take off an outer garment in order to do physical heavy labor. Now, if I had to go out, any of us who are wearing a sport coat had to go out after, after worship and you know, get dirty, what are you going to do? You're going to take off your sport coat. Maybe even take off your white shirt. It's okay if your t-shirt gets dirty, but you don't want to mess up your dress shirt. Your wife certainly doesn't want you to mess up your dress shirt. We have to lay these things aside and receive the word with meekness that is implanted. The word is implanted. And then in verse 21, 22 rather, put on my glasses, he tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. We have to be doers of the word. That's a strange phrase, doers of the word. How can you do the word? A little bit more on this in a little bit, but to do the word, you first have to know it. This is a simple way of saying obey God's law. An obedient, active, living faith. That's what God wants. That's what God demands from us. Now the question is, is there something that gets in the way? Now, I'm going to presuppose that you want for your life what God wants for your life. If I ask you to raise your hand, and I'm not going to do it, 
do you want to have a living, active faith? Would any of you say, no, I want a dead, formal faith? Nobody in their right mind is going to say, that's what I want. Even if I have it, I want something better. And if you don't, well, you really need to think. What's getting in the way? We have to think of faith as a journey. It's a journey. It's a long journey. We don't know how long it will last, but life and faith is a journey. When you go on a long journey, you do well to prepare. What do we do when we go on a journey? Get the tires rotated, get the oil changed, check the hoses to make sure there's no leaks, general stuff. If it's during winter, maybe we pack a thermos with hot broth in case the car stalls out, maybe pack some blankets for the kids. If it's summer, you certainly want to check the Freon and the air conditioner, make sure you stay cool, pack some Cokes and cold water to keep cooling in case the car breaks down. You prepare. You think of obstacles. We use our GPSs now to realize, oh, it's a traffic jam. Take a different route. Oh, it's an accident. Take a different route. What are the obstacles in our way today? What are the obstacles in your life that are preventing you from having this active faith? Well, thankfully, the text tells us, continuing on, self-deception. He tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive themselves. Why? For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. In the ancient world, people didn't have mirrors. Not like we have. You know what a mirror was in the ancient world? It was a piece of metal that was bent up, probably, and, and, and smudgy. You can, see your, you can see your reflection, can't you? If you look at a car that's painted silver, you can see your reflection. But it's not quite the same. Try shaving, guys. Try shaving uh, in the morning, looking on the hood of a car. You're going to be very, very careful with that razor. Because the reflection is going to be dim. Most people in the ancient world really had no idea what their face looked like. And James is using this analogy to point out that someone who just hears the word is like someone who takes a gaze at this thing and then walks away and forgets what type of person he is or she is. Self-deception. How do we self-deceive ourselves? Two things. One, thinking that hearing is good enough. Listen to me carefully. Listening to sermons is just a first step. The goal of my sermons isn't that you get a bunch of information in your head. The goal is that you walk through those doors and your life has changed. That you walk through those doors and you affect other people's lives. That when enough of us walk through those doors with a living, active faith, we actually change the community around us. And when the community around us actually changes, we change the world. That's the goal. That's what I want. That's what God wants. That's our goal. For you. Not to hear. Not to just listen. But to take in the implanted word and act on it. To live it out. To put feet to it. To actually do the word. To actually be obedient. Because you see, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into believing that all we have to do is hear and not act. 
The Reformation was all about justification by grace through faith. That's its strength. But you can take that too far and forget that a faith that justifies never stands alone. It always is accompanied by sanctification, by further conformity to God's will. There's two prevalent things in our world right now, in our Christian culture, that we need to be careful of. One is what's commonly called easy believism. It's not really easy believism. Believing isn't easy. If believing was easy, a whole lot more people would do it. And trust me, I run into a lot of people who don't believe, who tell me I'm nuts for being a pastor. It's easy salvation. It's cheap grace. That's what it really is. Say the sinner's prayer, and you're good to go. Accept Jesus as Savior, but, you know, you don't have to accept him as Lord. Listen to me very carefully. You don't accept Jesus. He accepts you. You don't make Jesus Lord and Savior. You acknowledge that he's the king of history. Anybody who thinks that they can make Jesus Savior or make Jesus Lord or make Jesus King is putting on shoes that are way, way too big for their feet. He's already King. He's already Lord. He's already Savior. Your job is to get on your knees and acknowledge that fact. You don't elect him. He chooses you. You don't have any say in the matter. He is who he is. And whether you acknowledge it or not, he is always going to be king. Always has been, always will be. And what does Paul tell us? That on that final day, every knee shall bow and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Eventually, every single living soul will bow. Those of us who are Christians have the privilege of doing so long before that moment arrives. So we have to be very careful of cheap grace. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus' works. We're saved by His grace. But once we are saved by His grace, we offer our lives as a living sacrifice, as Paul tells us in Romans 12, in thanksgiving for what He has done for us. And we lay aside the filthiness and overflow of wickedness. You see, someone who just hears the word and doesn't do it is still remaining in filthiness and an overflow of wickedness. So that's cheap grace, what you might hear called easy believism. The other thing which is common is what's called carnal Christianity. There's this understanding in certain wings of the American church that there's two levels of Christians. There's Christians who are well, we're all saved. Everybody's a Christian. All you have to do is trust Christ. That's true. It's true. I once had a friend who really, really, really believed this doctrine. And he said, listen, there's two kinds of Christians. People like you and me. And I says, okay, you're putting us in one class. Right away, you're, you're, you're in dangerous turf here. Okay? He says, you and me, you know, we really believe. I said, okay. We really believe. And we're trying to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. There's other people who believe, but it's not as strong, so they're all caught up in sin and wickedness. 
carnal Christians. And I said, I'm not going to use his name in case he listens to my sermon, even though I haven't seen him in 25 years. I said, where are you getting that idea from? I said, where on earth? I said, so you're telling me that someone can trust Christ and then go out and literally rape, pillage, and plunder for 30 years and never show any signs of remorse or repentance for their sin, never darken the door of a church, do all kinds of horrible, festering evil, and still be saved. He goes, yes. I said, brother, in case you haven't noticed, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of God is his hand. Repent and belief are both necessary. You can't have one without the other. If you truly believe that Christ is king and has died for you, you will naturally want to repent. You'll want to walk away from the disgusting things you've done. That won't be easy. But those are the things that are obstacles to our faith, this self-deception. And James is warning us of that. Now the next thing we have to ask is, okay, God wants us to have an active faith. He wants us to be doers of the word. We have this obstacle of self-deception. Where is the grace of God? Where is God's gracious provision in this passage that we can overcome those obstacles? Think of it as a traffic jam. How do you get around a traffic jam? Well, if you see it, you get off. If you see a traffic jam in the horizon, you have two choices. Either keep driving and grin and bear it and hope for the best, or take a gamble and get off and try and go a back route. Now, with God, avoiding the obstacles is never a gamble. Self-deception and cheap grace are the obstacles to us having a living, active faith. And what does James tell us to do? Verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The way to avoid self-deception, the way to avoid the idea that we can have cheap grace, the way to avoid improper doctrine, listen very carefully, is to know good doctrine. Look what it says. You have this, have this contrast. Someone who just gazes into a mirror. Oh, here I am. And then walks away and forgets what he looks like. Why? Because in the ancient world, you didn't have a mirror at home. Somebody might be trying to sell you one on the market. Oh, that's what I look like? Thanks. Leave. You don't have another mirror. Because they're expensive. You've got to buy bread. You leave. You forget what you look like. It doesn't cross your mind again. That's the person who hears the word and does nothing with it. But what does James contrast that person with? He who looks into the perfect law and continues in it. You see, you have to open up this book. If you're going to be a doer of the word, the command, would it make sense to know the word? How do you know what the speed limit is? You get stopped by a traffic officer. Do you have any idea how fast you're going? Well, no, officer, my speedometer is broke. Oh, that's problem number two. I guess you didn't see the sign back there either that said 35, not 55. So you have two problems. 
Your, odometer, your speedometer is not working, and you didn't bother to see the sign. And third problem, you didn't see me behind you. I had to chase you for two miles. And three problems here. One, bad information. The odometer, the speedometer is not working, didn't see the sign. You can't do the word. You can't have an active faith unless you know the word. And you can't know the word unless you actually open up the book. Now you may say, well, pastor, for a thousand years people were illiterate. They didn't. They weren't able to read. How, How did they work out their salvation? Well, and someone actually used that to me once. I said, well, you can read. I said, to talk about someone who's illiterate and doesn't have a Bible doesn't work for you because you can read and you have three different translations in your house. It's not illegal to have a Bible in America. You can't talk about what it's like to be a a Christian in Saudi Arabia and not have a Bible because you're not Saudi Arabian. It's ruled out of court. It's inadmissible. Do you have a Bible in your house? I know that you all do. If you don't, then I'm giving you permission. Take a pew Bible. Just make sure that it wasn't donated by somebody, okay? Just make sure it doesn't have a special sticker in the front. You can take it. Just tell me. You can have a Bible. If you don't want to take a pew Bible, I'll buy you one. You have to open up this word. Do you realize what a gift this word is? That this, We believe that this is the very words of God. That this is the key to understanding life and history. That this is the key to interpreting properly the chaos that's around us. That this actually gives us the answers. And if you're a Christian, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you can understand this word. It's not nearly as complicated as most people think. Some parts are, but listen, Book of James, not complicated. Not complicated. Be doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive themselves. You have to have a a third grade education to be able to understand what that means. Think about that self-deception. Have you ever been deceived by somebody else? Was it fun? What does deception mean? The person manipulated you. It's kind of weird to think that you manipulate yourself into believing the wrong thing, isn't it? That's, that's the height of insanity. If you're deceived by somebody else, hey, it can mean two things. One, they're good. Two, you didn't have your antenna up. But if you deceive yourself, who are you going to blame? You can't blame the word that's implanted. Think of it this way. If you take a healthy seed and you plant it in healthy soil and cultivated under healthy circumstances, that seed will actively grow and bear fruit. That analogy, the seed is the word of God. That's always healthy, correct? If there's no fruit in your life, you can't blame the word of God. It's healthy, it's implanted. Now let's skip a step and go to the conditions. This is where it gets tricky. You have to have healthy conditions for a seed to bear fruit in the natural world. Do you know what the healthy conditions are for the implanted word to grow in your life? Hold on to your hats. 
It's whatever your current circumstances are. We often think as Christians, you know, if I could just get over this hump, if God would just give me this thing here, I, boy, I, my spiritual life would just take off. No. Ironically, the healthy conditions for spiritual fruit are the storms, the trials, the tests, and the temptations, and the struggles of life. That's what he says earlier in the chapter. Blessed is the man who overcomes temptation. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you encounter various trials. You see, if you want to grow a nice tree, palm tree, for example, I'm going to guess that a palm tree is not going to grow at the North Pole. It's too cold. Bad conditions. Your life will only bear fruit if it's under pressure. Now listen, this is where life gets very confusing. Some of you have been thrown into the furnace by God. And then he's taken you out, dropped you into a nice storm, and dropped you back into the furnace. He's given you many things to deal with. Other Christians, they haven't had to deal with nearly as much. You know what that means? That must mean that he thinks that you can handle it. That must mean that he is giving you actually an opportunity to bear more spiritual fruit. Not that life is comfy. We think of the Christian life as a comfy ride. What Christ is trying to get through to us in this passage is that it's not the comfy ride. It's the spiritual fruit. So, if the seed of the Word of God isn't the problem, and the healthy conditions, the storms of life aren't a problem, there's only one thing left. The heart. So I have to ask you, how's your heart today? What's your heart condition today? Is it plowable to God's word? Is it a good place for God's word to reside? You might say some days yes, some day no. It's the way it goes. Open up this word. Don't expect a comfy ride. Think for just a minute about our missionary in India, Leon. When he was here, he was offered positions to stay here in America. If you stay here, he was told, you can have a greater influence because you can tell people. He said, no, I really, you heard his testimony. I, I have to go back. So he had a choice. Stay in America, which is a much nicer place to live. Now go back to northern India, where his reward, you may recall, was being taken out into the woods, blindfolded, and have a gun put to his head. But he told me in my living room, I wouldn't change it for a, for a minute. Never, ever tempted to come back here. Because that's where God's called me. Wow. That's spiritual fruit. Now, God hasn't called you to those circumstances. But he wants you to have a living, active faith. Put your faith into action, brothers and sisters. And you will be blessed in what you do. That's how the passage ends. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we do ask you that your implanted word would bear a rich harvest in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.